Hello, everyone, and welcome back to an all-new episode of The Financial Confessions. It's me, your host, Chelsea Fagan, founder and CEO of The Financial Diet, uh, and I'm just a woman who loves to talk about money, as you guys know. And you must excuse my stuffed-up voice. I'm coming off a cold. I, it's, you know, I'm very much on the out, uh, on the exit side of it. I'm no longer contagious. I just, like, it's going to be a while until everything is back to normal, so you're just going to have to deal with this voice today. However, in exchange for having to listen to my very Chucky Finster energy. Uh, you are getting uh, a second week in a row of some of my all-time favorite YouTube creators, the people who, as I mentioned on Mooncat's last video, are just the kind of creators where when they drop a video, you're like, you get at that fork and knife, you tuck the little napkin bib in, you're like, we are eating today. Um, my guest today is actually also someone that we have had the pleasure of working with before at TFD. And you guys, if you are true historians of the channel, have already seen on our channel, in the form of her writing. As some of you may remember, we had a takeover by former YouTuber, creator, writer, author, Lindsay Ellis, a four-week series all about the representation of money in pop culture. It's one of my all-time favorite things that we've done on the channel. I think each episode is just so good, so striking. Um, and actually, one of her primary writers on that series was my guest today, who now has her own channel, which is just about to hit 200,000? We're getting there. 200,000 <laughs> subscribers, which is such an amazing milestone. And thanks to advisor.com for supporting TFC. Advisor.com offers expert financial planning and investing for a flat annual fee. Schedule a free consultation call with advisor.com today at advisor.com and never make another financial decision alone. Um, but before we dive into the conversation about her videos, her writing, her views on pop culture and money and more, let me just introduce my guest, Princess Weeks. Thank you so much for having me. I finally am on the screen of the financial diet. Oh, it's so exciting <laughs> to have you. You've really been someone who's been sort of in our ether for a very long time. Um, and I did tee it up a little bit, but could you tell our audience, for those who may not be familiar with your work, kind of what you do and what your work focuses on? So I primarily now focus on dealing with pop culture analysis at the intersection of race, sexuality, gender, all the fun, light stuff, um, and really just trying to sort of bring my own literary theory background and analysis to those works, whether it be like one of my more recent ones was, why are there so many Confederate vampires? I know. And it's like, I, I was literally sitting down watching True Blood with my girlfriend, just like, it's time to make a content, babe. <laughs> like, oh, yes. <laughs> um, I've actually never seen True Blood. Is it worth watching? Uh, overall, yes. Stop around season four, though. That's when it starts to get a little a little wacky. But, uh, but before that, it's pretty solid. Um, and so you worked on the series, as I mentioned, Pop Culture Portfolio that we did with Lindsay Ellis, um, where you really were kind of exploring the intersection of pop culture and money. And I'd love to hear, just to kind of kick us off, your sort of overall take at how you feel money and class are represented or aren't represented in mainstream pop culture? Well, I think one of the interesting things is like the illusion of the middle class is very much at the epicenter of a lot of pop culture. Yeah. The mobility of teenagers to do things and go places, not a lot of work. You know, very few characters tend to have long-term jobs. And so you see at a very early time the sort of disconnect between what money will and will not give you access to. Going back to something that I used to love, like Boy Meets World, it was always made a very big deal that Sean Hunter, Corey's friend, um, was poor, that he lived in a trailer park, yet you never saw him struggling with money overall. Like it, he went to school the same as everybody else. His clothes were still always real done. And so even in those senses, you don't really get to see out of really 
a really poignant work about what it's like to be poor in media. Um, going back to something like, you know, black sitcoms, I don't think it's been since good times that we've really had a working class black family in the mainstream in that way anymore. I think after the Cosby show shifted that dynamic and the black middle class became representative of this idea of the American dream, it kind of got absorbed into that now. So now most of the stuff about black people in mainstream media, there's exceptions like P-Valley and things like that, are mostly about middle class, professionals, people who are in a certain upper dynamic. And uh, it really sucks because I think of works like Roseanne or the early seasons of Shameless and really attaching to them because there is something very ingrained in your character about having to grind and work and always feeling like as soon as you get ahead, you're going to come right back down. And I think that there's something really important about making sure that those realities are seen. Yeah, it's really interesting how I think it's been discussed before, but it's always worth repeating how so out of touch so many sitcoms feel now because they had a single breadwinner home Mm -hmm. where the man had a job and the woman stayed home. And often the man was not college educated or he was not in a professional class job. And it was totally normalized that these are the jobs that you have and can afford a large Mm -hmm. single family home and multiple cars in the garage. And I, I think for a lot of people, our image of what the middle class is in America is based on a really outdated notion. Like I think a lot of people still believe that you could have that kind of life on a single family income. And if you're not able to, that's more like an individual character flaw than a systemic issue. Absolutely. And I think sometimes, and I get it from like a showrunner perspective, you don't want it to always be clash edification. But I think Roseanne, you know, before everything happened, was a really good example of managing all of that because, you know, the kids don't all get to go to college. You know, you can work really hard and even get a scholarship and it still can't be enough. And that's, and I think it's important not only to see that, but to humanize that, to show that it's not one person failing or not being good enough. And also just the, the familial harm so to speak, it can do. Because I remember the, the moment where I Becky goes to her dad and is angry at him because she's like, I did all this work and you can't send me to college because you went from job to job to job and dream to dream to dream. And it's so heartbreaking because they both have a very valid reason for, you know, you should always want to go after your dreams. And when you're working class, those dreams can only get you so far. And for your children, you know, the resentment that they can have of feeling put into a situation that they didn't ask for and they're doing their best and then realizing that sometimes doing your best isn't enough. And I know for me, um, I've had to deal with those sort of things of like, I remember when I graduated college, I didn't work because my, my mother really wanted me to like focus on school. And so I left college having no real work experience and couldn't be able to find any and just feeling very disillusioned of like I went to college went to grad school and I'm just working retail you know and yeah. there's nothing wrong with that but I think the expectation that media gives you is that you you go to school you get an education and you're going to just have all these doors open for you and that is not the case at all <laughs> totally it's also not I mean one of the things that's really striking too is the representation of childhood especially mm-hmm. as a child consuming media like I grew up very like lower middle class working class in um, the South where my experience of childhood, I almost never saw on television in terms of like even really basic things, but like the idea of going to camp. I was Mm. like, you go to a camp or you like sleep there? Like even those really sort of ingrained ideas of what childhood consists of or like 
clubs and hobbies or, you know, all the way up to things like private school. And there was really never, and I, for me anyway, a, a vision of childhood on television that felt comparable to what I think is probably the majority of children's experiences in America, which is just kind of like you just go outside and like run around. Yeah. And there's not a ton of, and interestingly, one of the only pieces of pop culture I ever saw that felt like sort of what I remember childhood being like, and mine was not anywhere near this extreme, but have you seen The, the Florida Project by Sean Baker? Oh, yeah. That, oh, that movie oh, got me. <laughs> truly, probably one of the best representations of the poor and, and working class I've ever seen, but yeah. also just like... And how expensive it is to be poor. The cycle of it, the concerns, the like everyday stress, but also just the feeling of a life, a, a, life, a, a childhood and the life of a child that wasn't... Um, kind of like you were saying earlier, totally set out for you, mm-hmm. which I feel like is the primary representation we see of childhood on pop culture. Yeah. Like you have to succeed. Absolutely. And I think we also, with adultification, which is for those who don't know, sort of like putting adulthood onto young children really early, we fetishize that in a lot of ways. We fetishize the child that like raises themselves. Right. And we treat that as if like, look how wise and smart they are. It's like, that comes with a lot of damage. You're not supposed to parent yourself. You're supposed to have people in your lives who are who you can rely on. And I think a lot of times you see the you see this idea of like your parents are always going to be there for you and all of these safety nets. And I think that's overall a good thing. I think it's good that we put that out there. But I think there's also something meaningful in like Florida Project of saying like this mom is doing her best, but even her best is harmful. Oh, absolutely. Well, and also like, mm-hmm. I mean, I was lucky enough to not have abusive or neglectful parents. But another thing that I think often does intersect with class that children never get to see is uh, you know, parents who are not, you know, healthy figures in yeah. their kids' lives, like parents who are struggling with addiction, um, you know, parents who are not around, parents who, uh, you know, are um, are even openly abusive. And I think part of the problem of this really idealized version of the middle class life and childhood is I think it can often further isolate kids and teenagers who are not able to experience this perfect and they sort of wonder now it's like oh I'm even weirder and more alone than I thought I was you know that's why I think it was so great when Sesame Street brought in like a uh, a character whose parent was in was in prison in jail because that is something that a lot of people have to deal with you know and there's nothing inherently marginalizing about that that's such a common experience especially where you're in your communities like rural communities urban communities we had those intersections we don't talk about and a lot of it is being hyper policed right and having people come into these areas already criminalizing us from a very young age you know and i think normalizing that for young kids is important and there are ways to do it at an age-appropriate level but so many people don't even feel called to do that because they know it takes a little bit extra work to get that right. And so often the poor kid in a show is just like the smelly kid. Yeah. You know, the kid who wears the same like dirty overalls all the time. They are just, they're there. They're like, you know, the Kenny McCormick's of South Park. They're there as like a joke about trailer park culture. But there's no real analysis of like, well, what is this child's living reality on the day by day? Seeing all their friends get to do all of these things, experience all these things, but they can't. <sighs> makes me remember space camp. I was like, I just feel like there were so many aspects of what was marketed to children. And it's, again, it's not like the aspirational aspect of it because there's aspiration in every part of culture, but it's the idea that this is the normal experience. 
Well, I think even like the idea of like the internship, you know, because oh, please, the, yeah, because I remember thinking like you, I remember watching it. You go to you go to thing, you get an internship. Good, you you just find it. You somehow you just find it, and it's like you can't find it. You really need to know somebody. You know, I think in the media you said this idea that like you go to college and you just meet your advisor and they just hand you an internship, and it really belies all of like. It depends on the funding for your school. It depends on the funding for your department. It depends on how well your department has really oiled those engines for you. And if you can afford to work for free. If you can afford to work for free, because I know <laughs> I I could not. <laughs> uh, even living from home, because there's a mentality, I think, for a lot of you know kids that come from working class backgrounds. Like, you still have to work even if you're living at home. Of course. Because you have to be paying for something. <laughs> it's, you know, it's interesting, too, how much I think the college experience, like, there's so much blame to go around as far as the as far as college education being as predatory and expensive as it is but i do think a lot of it again boils down to not boils down to but is in part pop culture and how these things are represented because like i went to a community college i it was never even a thought for me that i would be able to go to like some incredibly expensive private school but I still aspired to it. Yeah. I still felt that there was something really wrong with me because I wasn't able to have that experience, even though when you look at the numbers, the vast majority of Americans don't have that experience. Absolutely. I mean, we all aspire to Harvard because we've been programmed to aspire to Harvard. Exactly. Even if it's not at all something that would really benefit us in the long run. You know, I went to uh, a small private liberal arts college in upstate New York. My brother went to Brown. Um, and I'm smarter than him. <laughs> but, but 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 really, it's just like we had different desires of what we wanted right. to do. And then I ended up getting my master's at Brooklyn College, which I think was one of my best experiences. And Brooklyn College is an amazing school with amazing things. And it was like I could pay it out of pocket. I walked out of that with no debt. All of my debt was from undergraduate and trying to get, get the legitimacy of a private liberal arts education. And I think also the the amount of debt that you accumulate from college, like we talk about it now, but when I was watching my shows back in the day, it was kind of like, you know, stories. yeah, we're watching my stories, my Gilmore Girls, you know, Rory didn't have to worry about this because even though her mom was poor, her parents were, were definitely, her grandparents were footing that bill to Yale and everything else with her three trust funds she managed to get rid of. So I have to reveal, so we have done Gilmore Girls content because I am living in a sea of Gilmore Girls fans and, you know, historians. I'm actually not super familiar with the text, but uh, I, I am versed enough to know that the class dynamics rival Sex in the City for just being completely out of touch. It is absurd. Um, and every time I rewatch it, the absurdity just like hits me again. And it's weird because Amy Sherman Palladino you know, cut her her keys in Roseanne. So she understands this stuff. That's shocking. Yeah. But I think it's the same thing with Mrs. Maisel. And I think that she really wants to lean into the fantasy elements of it. And she'll talk about how, like, well, you know, men get to do this and do that and blah, blah, blah. And I just think, like, well, Don Draper's a villain. <laughs> Midge Maisel is not set up to be an right. anti-heroine. Um, unless you're you're not telling us that. And I supposed to believe that. Because I could believe she's an anti-heroine. But... I think with something like Gilmore Girls, it, it, it plays so much with the, the signifiers and signs of class totally. that it wants you to engage with it, but it doesn't want you to engage too far, uh, even though it's right there on the tin. You know, one of the things that I 
really wanted to hear your opinion on. I mean, I know some of it from, you know, watching your stuff and the work that you've done with us, but I'd love to hear you talk about it. It's like, you know, we've kind of been through over the past 10 years a very interesting kind of small subset of eras in terms of the concept of representation Mm -hmm. in pop culture. I think when you look at like maybe the like, I don't know, whenever Hamilton came out, like the late Obama years, Mm -hmm. like there was, I think, a a very big, a substantial push toward uh, representation that was then pretty shortly thereafter, I think, really pushed back against in terms of sort of viewing the limits of representation across all different identity types, but specifically pushing back against representation that is often extremely class deaf or just sort of more about... um, diversifying elite spaces, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'd love to know your opinion on kind of that whole trajectory and where we are now in that specific sort of conversation. Well, specifically about like class and and representation, I think that we have this dual issue where we fetishize poverty, but we love that fetishization. You know, like we, we will have things that will elevate the the come up sort of like I think it's something like Moonlight where a part of it is the the ennui the sadness of this you know poor black queer boy growing up and having to grind themselves up for that and a film like Moonlight can understand like the beauty and the small intimate moments of finding your father figure and and doing with that but I think at large we really don't know how to deal with class because the people making these films nowadays are overall so diverse so, so, excuse me, so divorced from the realities of what it means to be part of a working class environment. Especially, you know, we talk about the Nepo baby thing uh, as kind of like a, a farce, but really th- the real issue with like nepotism in the industry is you have a class of people coming in who've never really had to work. Right. Who have never really had to create art through the vacuum of, I'm making this while I'm making my ramen noodles. I'm making this while I'm working at my father's store. I'm making this while I'm really, while I'm in prison, you know, who are, who are really working through it as they're going through it, so to speak. And so you have, I think in media right now is this trying to deal with like the metatextual analysis. And a lot of it is afraid of writing about class because it can be limiting. I think if you turn to bring race into it, I think that there's a trepidation about talking about black poverty because that can so easily be weaponized either way against the creator. Right. Um, I think of something like the the French movie Cuties, which got a lot of backlash um, years ago. But at the core of that film was about what's it like being, you know, an immigrant black girl in poor girl in a society that is hypersexual around you and how you absorb that hypersexualization, that westernization, that, you know, uh, the anti-blackness. And people couldn't see that part of the movie because they were so wrapped up in the marketing that Netflix had done and the element of sex that they ignore the fact that like young kids are not living in a sexless world. You know, young kids need to be aware to a certain degree about sex and sexuality in order to protect themselves and ask for help when it comes to certain things. But we so close that off. We close off all the bad things that come with being a poor kid and we don't want to deal with them and tuck them away. And so when it comes to making art, you don't want to be the artist that dips your toes into that. 
Right. And then gets a bunch of people trying to say that you're platforming this or you're leaning into these things. And it creates a limitation of what your art can be. And so mm. for every like moonlight that you get, you get a lot more things that are like la la land, you know? Well, I mean, I think, you know, speaking about it from, you know, a gender perspective, it seems to me to sort of imitate in a lot of ways the, again, I think it was around the same time, like the latter Obama term, like when there was a push for a very specific type of feminism that I think we now look back on and are like girl boss feminism, that was, you know, essentially just like a reproduction of really toxic structures and, you know, making them more female. But at the end of the day, if there is no class analysis, if there is no, you know, under material understanding of how the majority of women live, like at the end of the day, I think that the whole question of representation being important, like if you divorce that entirely from the actual tangible impacts it has on the group on a wider basis, then it is, I mean, it's hard to see it as anything other than sort of superficial. Oh yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It is all superficial. I mean, like even if we look at the all the elements of the two Leslie uh, scandal with um, Andrea Riseborough got nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress um, after a grassroots campaign from a bunch of her contemporaries. And her film is like an indie project. It's a small film about like a, a poor woman who like won a lot of money and going through it. And what's controversial about it essentially is that like the campaign to push her into Best Actress pushed out essentially two black potential black nominees but just take the trying to put that on the side the the character herself is playing this very sad tragic character story of like a poor white woman going like trying to deal with these kind of class issues and that is a movie that no one saw and Mm -hmm. i think the thing about it too is like those movies are being made they're just not being made by major studios. Not They're not being picked up by major studios. And they are sort of like ghettoized in a sense that like they are part of a, of a film genre that you can only access if you have enough people in your life that watch movies outside of the box office and you have access to another streaming service that does invest in curating independent cinema. So independent cinema is where we find a lot of those things. And it sucks that that those kind of films are put to the side so that you have Mm. to actively seek them out. They don't just appear to you. And that isn't a slander on the audience because I think that like, we can only seek out so much. If we don't know it's out there, how can we find it? And I think to to go to your point about like the girl boss feminism, I find that so interesting because while obviously that was a problem, I do think that it's interesting that we spend so much time, you know, profiting off of these girl boss feminists and their downfalls in the media. Like we had like all stuff about Elizabeth Holmes, all the stuff about, you know, um, Anna Delvey. And I'm like, you're just proving why what they did was profitable. You know, like you're just, you're just proving that there is something to invest because you are turning these women into like literally Don Draper and totally you're, you're turning them into the characters that you couldn't actually write for television because you didn't have the range. And I should like, Oh wow. Ladies are pimps too. And it's just like, <laughs> and then bringing them on and like elevating them. So I find that to be interesting of how so much of media was so afraid to write these kind of women. And then we actually had them in real life and they're like, Oh, okay. So we can write 
a woman who is manipulative and greedy and all these kind of things and the limit and how and how to a degree there is a there's a way in which we fetishize the idea of women being the superior moral sex Mm. in a way that is divorced from actual humanity well and also i mean in the examples you named like we are still profiting off of fetishizing, cinematizing their, I mean, scams and, yeah. and like real material harm, especially in the case of Miss Holmes. Um, but we're only doing it in so far as they're still rich and glamorous. Like exactly. the part of the story that you're watching is like the part where Elizabeth Holmes is like bopping around in her Arcteryx vest, just looking mm-hmm. scary as hell. It's not when she's, you know, in prison. It's yeah. not when she's no longer aspirational to some extent. Same with Anna Delvey. And which is why in some ways, like, for example, I don't know if you saw it. I loved the memoir and I loved the show Made on Netflix. Yes. Mm-hmm. Loved it. And talk about a Nepo baby. I mean, I am no one to give a Nepo baby their flowers if they're not due, but Margaret Qualley really did yeah. turn in a fantastic yeah. performance in that. Andy McDowell a little bit more so-so, but I actually think it was like a reverse Nepo baby situation. Anyway, all of that is to say, I was like shocked that that was made, first of all, and yeah. that it, no pun intended, and that it did as well as it did because it's one of the few pieces of media, especially at that scale and level of production I've seen, that takes a real interest in a woman's story where it's pretty much totally unaspirational yeah. from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Like, there's not a glow up. there. I mean, a little tiny bit, kind of, but like, she's never like wearing something, you know, fashionable. She's never driving a nice car. She's never, she never has any of the things that you almost always need to see to consider a character, especially a, a female character, aspirational. Absolutely. And I think that's so important, too, is that we, we all try to glamorize poverty. I mean, like, that's what we've been doing since Cinderella, finding a way to be like, well, look, if you just if you just stay in your place and just be really good, one day you'll get success. Exactly. And we internalize that a lot. You know, another thing that I think is really worth kind of exploring, aside from the sort of, and again, it's, it's, Tough to say, right, because there are really good examples, as we've discussed, about or of the the representation of poverty in media. And sometimes I think it's completely sidelined and elided. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of times it's also really fantastical in its representation. And we sort of ascribe a moral purity Mm -hmm. um, to poor people. Like I'm thinking, for example, of the movie Beasts of the Southern Wild, which was a gorgeous movie. It was really, really emotionally affecting, at least for me. But it also really does read like a perfect example of the sort of moral purification that we'll often give to the poor that in another way also robs them of agency in the Mm -hmm. sense that like you're not a magical figure just because you live in poverty. Um, I'm interested to kind of get your take on the balance between not demonizing or infantilizing poverty in media, but also not pretending as though it's a total moral absolution. You know, I think it's interesting because I think part of it is the interplay between the audience watching and the work being made. I go back to Shameless because that's kind of like my go-to and I watch it for a really long time. For a while. Okay. That's the answer for every show. (laughs) I really loved it. But to me, I remember there's a... The thing about it is that it's very cyclical. Okay. The moment that you think the characters have made progress, something happens and they go back down. And I remember reading responses and reviews. It was like, why can't they be happy? Why yeah. can't they be successful? Why are they doing the same thing over and over again? I'm like, because they're poor. Because they're poor. Totally. They live in a shitty area. 
They only have so much mobility. There's a character. His name is Lip. He's 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 great. Um, he's the smart one, and he kind of handles the finances and does stuff. And he goes off to college, and he can't really separate the part of him that's smart and academically driven from the part of him that's always hustling, always grinding, that thinks that he belongs on the South Side. And for him, it's all this thing of like, how far can I move ahead that I don't leave my family behind? Right. Which is such a real thing of like, I don't want to forget where I came from. I don't want to become one of those people who leaves home and never comes back and forgets where they came from. There's that. There's the character of Fiona, who was the oldest sibling girl gave up most of her childhood to raise all her siblings the moments that she indulges herself always backfire because once you've been adultified to the point where you become the caregiver for your siblings you forever blur the line between sibling and parent and so you can't do that anymore she tries to but she can't and so she always fails at it and then there's a the girl character debbie who gets pregnant very young because she wants a family, but she also sees other girls her age getting pregnant. And I would just see people being very mad at these storylines because they felt like a continuation of the cycle. And I'm like, but that's the point. It can be exhausting. And I think at certain times the, the show does um, play up the comedic part of this com- comedy dramedy, but that is part of it. Totally. You, part of it is being in an environment where you can be smart, you can be kind, you can be clever, you can be a great person and you can sometimes really break through. But if part of something in your core that you haven't gone to therapy about, you haven't really actively worked to change your ways is part of how you've been structured, it can come back at you in ways that you don't even know. Especially when your parent is an addict, especially when your parents have been negligent, especially when you have been forced to take on responsibilities at a very young age that never should have been yours. And I'd like to take a quick pause to thank today's sponsor, Advisor.com. The TFD community loves Advisor.com, so I'm incredibly thrilled to be partnering with them this year. As you know, one of my life's passions is making financial education accessible for everyone. It shouldn't matter where you come from, what level of education you have, or what your current financial circumstances are. I'd argue that the more precarious your current situation is, the more important it is to educate yourself financially. And that includes having a professional guide you along the way to help you make the best decisions and navigate our financial systems with confidence. Getting to work with a living, breathing financial advisor has historically been out of reach for those with less than 250K in the bank, despite the fact that many of life's meaningful financial moments happen way before hitting that financial milestone. Robo-advisors and apps have tried to fill that gap, and while they can be helpful depending on your situation, there really is no replacement for one-on-one guidance and connections. Advisor.com provides their clients with a top-notch advising team for a fixed, flat annual fee. If you have money resolutions for 2023 and are feeling motivated to make positive changes, think of them as your financial accountability partner. Their team of advisors work for you, not commissions, and will help you to achieve your smart financial goals through planning, investing, tax strategizing, and more. As I mentioned earlier, the TFD community loves and trusts advisor.com. Schedule a free consultation with advisor.com today at advisor.com and never make another financial decision alone. This is like not film or television, but I have such a pet peeve when I read that, like, I'm sure you've probably come across this too, but like when you're reading fiction, like a novel and it's, I mean, most novels are written by people who are fairly well off and always have been. And when you're reading a novel and you like 
see a poor person talking and they say things that you're like, no human has ever said this. The put on dialect is my one of my least favorite tropes. I can't unless you're Nora, it's shocking. Unless you're Nora Neil Hurston, please, Zora Neil Hurston, please stop. You can't do it. It's it's hard also because the magical poor person is like I think of like the uh, the pigeon woman from Home Alone Two. Never seen it, but oh. <laughs> I've like never seen a lot of things. It's so. okay. I've also it's never seen Home Alone One, but continue. It's okay. No, it's totally fine. But like you'll see sometimes in children movies, there'll be like a scary poor person, right? Who everyone has like a mythology around, and once you get to know them, they're actually like a really kind person and i think that's always so interesting because like we live in new york now where we have such disgusting laws that are going on about the unhoused community right and so it's like in the media we try to do this kind of thing like they just you know just give them a hug or give shake you know just do these little like cute little things it's never about how can we actually improve the lives of these people it's really about playing with elements of mental health and using mental illness in unhoused populations as like something that is supposed to terrify kids to like stay away from strangers but then later on be like no it's okay they just need a little bit of kindness and i'm like or we could do some legislation we could put it you know we could do something to actually you know build homes for these people and get them the care that they really need right and like the medical attention in many cases they it's i do think that there is also and it I think it ties in as well with like the very negligent representation of the middle class because it there's a very clear dichotomy that's made in a lot of pop culture between um, the people who work and have things and the people who don't and don't. Whereas in America, the majority of people, for example, who are on social programs work. You know, these are these distinctions are not nearly as real as we think they are. Many of the people who are unhoused work like there is very i think that we in the desire to storytell in these very neat ways and to your earlier point maybe avoid doing something wrong quote unquote we want to make these extremely neat categories about what social class looks like what poverty looks like what homelessness looks like and at the end of the day i think it really makes a lot of people similar to the childhood stuff. It makes people who don't fall into these categories, which is the majority of people feel even more isolated. Yeah. It's sort of like, it's almost Dickensian because I think if anyone really knew how to like market poverty, it was Dickens. Like he was very good at like both being able to be like, isn't this after <laughs> someone should do something about these poor, but, but also doing the same thing that you talk about and having like, in these populations of these outlaws and crooks, it's like the one really pure, savable poor person that exactly. you go through this journey with. And I feel like we are still, that that mindset is still what's ongoing. That we're still like, there are these that we can't help, but if we can just save one, that that's think, enough. Yeah. And I think that that's the fatal flaw. And going back to literature, I remember reading Jane Eyre for the first time and just finally being like, wow, it's great to have a character who was just like thrown away and then been like, you know, screw this. I'm going to make something of my life. I'm going to use this little bit. Like, I found her, that character so relatable because even though she has a little bit of, like, class stratification because she has, like, rich relatives, she herself is seen as, like, worthless unless mm-hmm. she can make something of value of herself. And I remember feeling like, yeah, I get that because that's how it often feels of, like, unless you can prove yourself to society, they've already decided that you're worthless. Totally. And it's also, I mean, at the end of the day, probably one of the most defining sort of 
frameworks that we have in America is that your social class is above all a representation of your moral character and value. And I do think that there's, if we're not constantly in some way reinforcing the narrative that there is something wrong with, let's say, 99% of poor people, except for those one or two who are destined for greater things because you have to have the American dream, although obviously that doesn't scale. Like, there's just, there's no real way to keep the mythology going unless you're constantly reaffirming that extremely inaccurate framework. Absolutely. And I think it's like what the people have done say is like, what we think of middle class right now is not actually no what it's middle class wealthy. is it's pretty much up as up as you can go and i don't think like i remember i was watching ally mcbeal and i'm like you guys are 26 and lawyers in like a firm in boston is that is that what happened Crazy in the 90s 26 i was shook it i don't, don't want to hear that <laughs> i was like i was like i don't really know if i would trust to hire you um but it, but i also think about like you know there was a period where at like at my age i just turned 30 last year um, I will be 31 soon, I guess. I should just say that. I was going to say that. <laughs> that old passage of time. Uh, uh, those COVID years just fly on by. Um, of thinking that at our, at, at you know, twin, in our late 20s and 30s, we should be done cooking. That our class has been decided and established. And that's just not true. And it's not going to be true anymore. <laughs> like I think Ever again, Ever probably. again. Like, I think that we have to start realizing that, like, what what does class mean to you right now? Like, where are you and what are your goals? Or what is the best kind of life that you want to live? And what does that actually look like for you? And especially like living in New York where it's so different. In New York City, it is so different. The The money that we live off of here would be able to stretch so far, literally anywhere else. Anywhere else, but also... I, it's interesting you say that because in some ways I do feel more insulated from a lot of these cultural norms and expectations living here because we're not, one thing that we've covered a lot on the channel is the increasing level of sprawl that Americans live in, even compared to our parents' generation in terms of our homes are much bigger. Even as we have less income, we are still in, at scale, aspiring to these large domains, which are increasingly made with very poor building materials, where our cars are much bigger, even though they're not built to last. Like everything is sort of scaling up on fewer resources, which to me, which is impossible in New York, which is, again, I think does insulate you a bit from that. But to me, that feels so indicative of what we grew up seeing because at the end of the day, any family that was even remotely framed as aspirational, they had a big house. Yeah. Even though what what we were seeing was upper upper middle class even back then, but now it's what we've internalized as like, that's just the entry point. Right. But because that's the entry point for everybody. I mean, like to bring up the franchise that must not be named, the first thing that happens to Harry when his life changes, he gets money. He gets money. He gets money, money, money. <laughs> he gets a literal vault of gold coins. <laughs> yeah, it's like, hey, hello, poor kid. Look at this. Also, did you ever see Sean's video about yeah uh, all-time iconic video? I really did not realize it was just a still image for three hours or whatever it is. But talk about a compelling still image. It's it's just all audio. But yeah. But one thing that he explores in that video is the fact that like it's never really addressed. But looking back, it's awkward as hell that like 
his whole best friend, his best friend through the whole series is someone who's like very, his like de- family's defining characteristic is that they're struggling with poverty the whole time. Yeah. And Harry never throws them a dime. Yeah. Never gives them money. It's like in The Princess and the Frog where everyone's like, like so Charlotte, why didn't you just give Tiana the money? Like, why don't you just give her the money? It's like, Correct. she has to earn it. It's like, earn Give her the money. Also, like, there's always that framing too in the exchange of money. Like, Okay, that's another thing is like there's always this framing in pop culture around giving money that the person is like, oh, I couldn't. Like, I don't yeah. want it. I don't want It's like, I want it. Like, yeah. what? Wouldn't like, anyone yeah. take it? Yeah, that's why I love Fran Fine from The Nanny because she oh, was yeah. always about the buck. She the is. discount, the everything. You know, it's like re- great. That's a class element all of it. So because so much of I, what I love about her in that show so much is that like it's very like, you know, they're all rich and everything. But she herself always stays true to her working class fashion all her outfits are so fun even though they're all like you know couture but her mindset like the coupon clipping the like always going after a sale it reminds me of the things that you know i I, you know the conversation about sort of like oh but you're poor but why do you have nice things oh yeah i love it when a character is framed as like coming from like a one bedroom and as soon as they have money they're going out and having a good time because that's what i wanted to I yes. want to do that. Yeah, I want to look like Fran Fine. Uh, uh, doesn't everyone <laughs> like the ultimate aspirational dresser? But I would also say that there's this very interesting kind of like, and we will obviously we have to talk about it. And some of the questions we have for you are from our audience are about it. But there is seemingly a glut of pop culture right now, media about the ultra, ultra, ultra wealthy. You know, we have Succession, Billions, White Lotus. I'm missing a ton, but they're there. Um, And there's this weird conversation happening around it where, on the one hand, like, can it be good to be consuming this much media about the ultra wealthy? Like, do we want to humanize it too much? On the other hand, especially in the case of something like, well, I guess all of them, it really makes it look very unappealing. And you really sort of start to ask yourself a lot of probably sociopolitical questions. Um, But it's interesting how consumerism, when framed that way, is just utterly never questioned versus like someone of any lower income consuming anything is now suddenly a a moral discussion. But I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this um, obsession with the uh, uber rich. You know, I think if it's, it's all tied to like our obsession with period dramas about, you know, monarchs, it's all about the, the illusion. Um, I think that the biggest problem that we have right now is that so many of us, especially in America, think that we are closer to being a member of the Royco inner circle than we think that we are, you know, the unhoused woman from Home Alone 2. We all think that we're so much closer to going on our our Sicilian adventure um, than we really are. You know, I, I think a lot of us have really big illusions and delusions about what we where how far we can go and not based on any fault of our own but how society has set it up we would rather watch you know these gays are trying to kill me and i and i love it too i loved it and i, I and, just and, finished and, and and watch that and, and and do that and and not question it but we would nitpick the, a poor drama where they went on a vacation of course. You know, I think even even with my tangents about Gilmore Girls, I do spend more time nitpicking 
that there's supposed to be a middle class one income family than I would ever think about well like how much money do they actually have in succession because when someone's ultra rich you just kind of accept it and I think it's our own desire to sort of like well I know what it's like to be this or that but the the opposite side is just so high up that it's it seems unreachable so you just kind of go with it yeah and I think that we're always more willing to tear down the people closest to us than we are the next two up because we assume that there's nothing that we can do can help. I even, I was thinking about this the other day, actually, while I was walking is like how we have given up the boycott as an actual motive of protest. The idea that we just don't consume something or don't consume from right. a company, like that's treated as a hard thing to do in a society where we have so many other options. Not all of them are great, but like, but we could boycott something. You know, every time I see a Chick-fil-A pop up, I think, wow, there are more Chick-fil-A's. I thought that we all thought that this wasn't a good thing. Did you have Chick-fil-A earlier? No, but <laughs> I've had it recently, like in the past couple months. I mean, again, I, do I, I don't, it. I don't like, I don't like dragged up. Like, I think it's interesting because someone's talking about like, oh, people are nagging people about playing the Harry Potter game. Like, I don't nag people. No. I don't think it's, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not nagging people, but I do wonder why we are willing to indulge the upper classes in their destroying of our planet and all their entitlement. But the idea of any class solidarity with any marginalized group about protesting one thing that would do maybe an iota of harm to a really, really rich person is seen as not worth it. Well, that is why nothing baffles me and kind of offends me more than stand culture. Because I'm like, you guys are really doing 24-7 unpaid PR for these people. Like when the news story came out about Taylor Swift, like causing more CO2 emissions with her private jet than like any other human in the world, whatever. And like, there were so many people coming to her defense, a lot of them the stands and like, just kind of being like, oh, they're like Jeff Bezos. And like, there's so many like, what about And like, and I'm, to me, I'm like all of those too, but also... How is it this impossible to hold in our minds that, yes, you might enjoy the art that they create, but they're billionaires yeah. who are doing a lot of real world damage. And the idea of not holding them as fans, as the people who probably could tangibly impact their bottom line the most to have no critical relationship with them. That is baffling to me. Yeah, I there's there's no one who I care that much about because they don't pay my bills. All the people I stand are fictional and or dead. Um, and, and that's been working great for me. Um, but no, I, I agree. It's, it's, it's really baffling the ways in which we have already given up power that we have as consumers, you know, like, totally. and I think that it's not about going to your friend and being like, you know, slapping the Chick-fil-A out of their mouth or like, you know, every time I see a Harry Potter bag that I should yank it out. No, but it is about being, first of all, not treating being informed as if it's being a nag. Like, it's in your world. You should know right. about it, especially if you want to call yourself an ally. And two, like, giving up something is the first step. In, giving up something in the first step towards trying to help someone that you say that you are in allyship with right, should not be treated as, like, man, I'm going to do this. You know, it's, right. it's, it's the whinging about it. And if you, if you must do it, can you just do it in private? Like, why do I have to hear about all your, your misgivings <sighs> oh and your God. problematic consumptions? You know, if you ordered on Prime Day, don't just don't tell me. Don't tell me. <laughs> I saw. Don't, don't tell you ordered on Prime Day. I don't ask you. Oh my God. I saw like a 30 tweet thread from someone about like why they're still an ally, but they're playing the like Harry Potter RPG. I was like, 
just play it. Like nobody asks you, are you a Twitch streamer? Like, what no, is this? <laughs> I, I, but I do feel like that there is this really interesting relationship that we all have. Again, I think driven by our media culture and especially our social media culture, where it's like, it's so little to do with the impact of your choice or your work or your actions and everything to do with perception and the kind of person you think that you are. Yeah. Well, I had somebody like, so I tweeted one time about like, I was watching Fern Gully and I was like, and I was like, and I was like, wow, we had whole movies about how important the environment were and we didn't listen. And someone was like, well, we can't do anything about it. It's the companies. And I'm like, we could still care, though. Right. Like, it's, it's the ambivalence for me. Like, it's, oh, yes, I know companies. I know the whole thing with the with the straws and the plastic. I know it's bullshit. But we could also do something, you know? Like, totally. It, it's so disempowering to, like, say, like, well, maybe we should just have people like, well, it won't matter because this is doing it. We should still do our part if we can. If it's not going to take anything better from our from our life. You know, like, I think about that when it comes to eating meat. I have been trying to eat less meat. Yeah. Not to be superior about it, but, like, if I care about the environment and eating red meat does a lot of harm, then maybe I should try to eat less of it. That's not going to change the world. But at least it's changing what I'm doing. I think there's a very strong value also for human mental health and psychology to having some sort of coherent internal sense of values and trying at least in small ways to live by them, even when no one is looking. And even for that reason, I'm like, you don't want to like make slightly better decisions. And, you know, it's just it's so funny. People like, will it really make a difference? I've seen so many of like my fellow creators who are trans get dragged and harassed over this game. So it's like if you're seeing people from the community that you say that you're allied with being harassed, being mistreated because they say like, I don't want to support the game because I don't like the creator's politics and they're getting harassed for that. Shouldn't that tell you that it is more than just you getting to indulge in playing Harry Potter RPG? Um, so we're just going to go through some of the questions you guys had for Princess. Also, it should be noted that so many of the responses were like, no question, but just tell her I love her, which I think is so I love you guys too. Okay. This is a really good one. Do you have any pop culture characters that you like, but their lack of class consciousness ruins them for you? Oh man. Uh, so Ellie Gilmore, my fave. Uh, she's such, (laughs) Holly's literally talked about this so much. That's my, I think my husband's favorite fictional character. She's. She's the best. She's the thing about it too. I think this is also about like the judgment thing. An annoying up their ass rich person, I can deal with. Someone who is working or middle class who doesn't know that there's stuff that annoys me more. So like falling into your own <laughs> trap from my earlier. Own trap, my own trap. So to me, it's like uh, she succeeded me a long time ago. That's my Kendall. <laughs> Wait. Okay. So I was having. I have not. Have you seen the Gossip Girl reboot? Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> I did not see it. I have never seen the original Gossip Girl. I have, nor have I seen the reboot. But I, I was at dinner with some friends recently, and they were talking about how much they f- hated the reboot. And they were like, "If I'm gonna, because they loved the original, but they were like, if I'm gonna watch a bunch of like spoiled rich teenagers on the Upper East Side, I want them to be dickheads." And these kids were all like, "They're like, ooh, we like have charities and we like spend our free time going to like these like cultural centers so and like boring. being really good." And they were like, "This is horrible. This is the worst of both worlds." What is your opinion on it? Oh, they're so right. Okay. <laughs> like it's like I want decadence you know like yes. I it's like I was like if I if it's gonna happen and I can't stop it I want and it was also just like that like toe in toe out class consciousness of right. like 
I want to protest my mommy and daddy. And it's like, okay. <laughs> but you want to live in that penthouse, though. Yeah, but if like, you get cut off, you're going to be so upset. Aren't you, Opie? <laughs> they were like, there was only one bitch on the show, and she wasn't even like a full bitch. It was like so unsatisfying. It was like, I really... Gossip Girl is such amazing of its time trash because it had no morals. The moral yeah. was being a teenager and being decadent and like Serena going like, I killed someone at the end of season one. That's what we wanted. We don't want Spoiler all of it. We, you got, if you know, you know. But no, it's like, I, I think that's kind of the thing about like the sort of like the progressive reboot. Even with the New Sex in the City reboot, it's like, Carrie was somebody who literally didn't know, think that bisexuality was real, but now she understands pronouns. I doubt it. Uh, okay. I doubt it. <laughs> I have seen the original Sex and the City like 15 times. I cannot bring myself to watch it just like that. I, don't do it. Every time I, I see I, a clip come across my screen, I'm like watching it through my fingers like this. I have huge, I have huge regrets about doing it. Don't put it through. Don't put yourself through that. I like even just reading what they did to my boy Steve. I'm like, you, they massacred uh-huh. my boy. Listen, when I have to be out here standing for a white man versus a queer couple, you know, it's really serious. Like I was like, I was like, they're like, you I remember writers be like, well, maybe people have issues with queer couples. I'm like, I don't have a problem. As someone who literally is a queer woman with a girlfriend, I don't have a problem with queer couples. I have a problem with bad writing. I have a problem with character assassination. <laughs> and also just like, yeah, it really, the whole reboot thing from so many perspectives is just such a tragic era of pop culture. Because it's like, can we have no dignity? Is Kim Cattrall the only person who's got the capacity to say like, no, I don't want to do the thing I was doing 20 years ago. Like, And did it perfectly then. Like, you all have your awards. You don't need this. And, and like, to me, the only thing I would have loved that got ruined was like, I would have loved to have seen... Carrie and Big be happy, child-free couple. Thank you. And then that was ruined. So like I was like, what do we see? Watch her be with Aiden again? I can't. Okay, I'm sorry. Not to. I have to go on this tangent for one second. As a child-free by choice woman, that what they have to murder you if you're happy in a couple without a kid. But also like. As someone who loves when you see a slightly older woman in a couple with a younger man, because that is just like so not represented and stigmatized in pop culture, they had such a beautiful ending for Smith and Samantha on that show. Mm-hmm. And then that movie, they just had Ruined to it. torpedo that relationship. That's when the I knew worst all the sequels. Way. That's how you should have known. All sequels, Sex in the City, it had the best ending. The, the ending of the sitcom was perfect. Everyone ended exactly where they needed to be. Everyone grew the way they needed to grow. And it was done. It was done. We didn't need any more. That's the only canon. The rest is not canon, I say. <laughs> um, okay. In what ways do you think pop culture perpetuates the finance bro stereotype and the idea that investing slash financial literacy is a masculine pursuit? You know, I, I think it's really just that you don't see a lot of women who that's what they talk about. You right. know, even women who are professionals, when they are together in a in a Thing, they're talking about their love lives they're talking about sex and when even in their like even if they're in a professional setting you don't even have the like oh yeah bro just did this it did this but you see men engaging with that more and i think it's sort of just like this inability to see women really care about that for some reason they feel like we like i think what what uh, carrie said like we wear our money we don't like collect it i think it's a mentality people still have that we don't actually financially think and make decisions that we're not out there hustling and and i Lindsay's doing that all the time she's the one who will tell me all these things and how to like do credit cards and how to use this pay this off but we rarely see characters who are seen to be that savvy especially ones like carrie 
or like, um, you know, Miranda who are well off and clearly live lifestyles where they are balancing a lot. I think they just want to believe that we do it by magic. Yeah. And also that like, there's something kind of inherently, um, I don't want to say unfeminine necessarily, but there's something, I think it's more about being emasculating to a man. Like, because even when you look at sex in the city, the women who like Samantha and Miranda, who were very financially conscious and talked about money, especially when they got into relationships, like that part of them definitely diminished quite a bit. And I think even with, with Miranda, like initially her thing with Steve is that he was just so in a different class sphere than her. And that was part of their like dynamic was like, reconciling that and I think that like what you said is correct it's it's emasculating but also that I think of like what was it the movie the big short where they have Margot Robbie in the tub Mm -hmm. to explain these really difficult concepts and it's a gag because it's like she's a hot blonde in a tub I think that is still the idea like it's the reason why women a lot of women will still take like a male partner or a male friend when they go to buy a car because they know that the people on the other side still see them they will respect. as as incapable of actually doing that. Right, and they'll respect the man. Mm-hmm. It's an Ouroboros. <laughs> <sighs> okay, as a creative and an incredible video essayist slash commentator, agreed, how have you learned to manage your finances? Do you maintain a nine-to-five as well? If so, how have you learned to, ban- to balance your incomes and lifestyles? All right, so this is a this is a, a heavy one. So I started making YouTube videos when I was like 15 years old. It's all been on the same channel forever, but it didn't really become like a profitable endeavor until like the last couple of years. Right. And all that time, I I worked at bookstores. I worked at the Mary Sue, and I ended up falling into a lot of bad habits when I was living on my own. Got it. Got store credit cards. And, and rack them up because I wanted to keep up with the Joneses. I felt like I had worked really hard. I was still working hard and I wasn't getting what I felt like I needed to get. So I ended up having quite a bit of credit card debt. Um, and then during the during COVID, during the pandemic, I was living with my parents because my partner and I broke up. So I went back home and my mom and I sat down and we were like, we're going to clear this all out. So... Mm-hmm. While I was in COVID and I didn't have to pay rent, all the money I had just went right to bills. So I ended up paying off my student loans and my credit card debt through the fact that I was at home not doing anything. And it kind of forced me to sort of go through things. And I think for me, the biggest help is the privilege of having family that could help me, if not financially, but give me a sense of structure so I had one less burden to deal with. You know, having family that had a house and I could have my own space and stay there and save is what helped me to move out. And now I think the hardest thing about being a creator and finances is that like, unless you come in knowing what it's going to be like, it's so hard to get your your mind around like the, the, the 1089s. The first time I had to file my taxes with them, mm. I had no idea that they didn't take the money out already. Oh, they don't. I did not know that they didn't take it out. And I just, and I remember going in from the, to the, um, the H&R block and being like, I owe how much? Can you, can you say that over again? What? Huh? How? And so I would say like, for me, what I've been doing since is just being very cognizant, keeping track of my expenses, knowing what I can expense has been a huge part of it, especially because a lot of what I buy are books and media to consume. So I make sure to keep track of all of that. And even though it's hard trying to save part of what 
I get. I think because of where I live, it sometimes feels like I'm still going paycheck to paycheck um, because my apartment is expensive. Um, but it really has been about me realizing like what is important to me, where can I downsize and sort of balancing that out. Um, when I left my nine to five, which was just at last last year, this is my first year just full-time YouTubing. I made that decision because I was not making the kind of money at my nine to five that justified the money that I was losing from not doing the content work that I was making. Right. And so that was a decision that I made, but it came with also now I have to pay for my own health insurance sure. um, and losing that little illusion of stability. But for me, I think it was really sitting down and having friends like Lindsay. Lindsay really sat me down, helped me put up a spreadsheet of my expenses and put me in a mindset of I can do this. So it really is having a community around you. I cannot emphasize it enough, like building bridges with people who you respect and care about and care about you yourself is so important because you can't do it alone. We're not taught that. Um, I wasn't taught how to do my taxes. And so having people who have been through it, who are able to give me guidance and seeking that out was just so important for me. And I'm so grateful because it's the way that I am able to do anything is because I had people who had gone through it, who held my hand and said, like, you can do this. This is how. And so for me, it's all about passing that on. I love that. Also, I did not know you've been making videos as long as you have. You've just been blowing up so much yeah. in the past couple of years. I was like, oh, she's only been at it for like two years. No, I was I was like a little brat who like hated Twilight. And I was like, I'm 15 and I hate Bella, Bella Swan. Um, and then I got better because of college and, and feminism and some bell hooks. But yeah, so it, it was just like an evolution. And now think and also thinking of myself now as a businesswoman. Right, exactly. I think that's a big thing of recognizing that like I am putting something out there that is that people are observing. It's commodified and and respecting my time. And assigning a value to your time yeah. and the work that you create. Well, I thank you so much for your transparency on that answer. I think that's really, it's inspiring. I think especially, I mean, you know, not that it's a good thing that it happened necessarily, but to hear that, you know, as a 20-something, you went back and lived with your parents for a while. And yeah. that was what enabled you to get out of, you know, debt and kind of get on your feet financially, I think it's important that people talk about stuff like that because a lot of people I think don't, even if that might be the best option for them, sometimes they don't feel that they can take it for, you know, social reasons. Yeah. I mean, when, when my really good friend Lane Moore, um, we talked about this a lot and like having a family that supports you is a privilege, you know, Huge. Uh, and especially ones that are local because my family all live in New York. So I didn't have to oh, go really? back. Yes. Okay. I didn't have to go back home. I could just be in Brooklyn, still network, still get all those opportunities and still be present in, nice. in here while getting my together. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Amazing. Okay. So for those who want to, uh, see more of your work. So obviously, you know, it's all going to be in the description, but where are you? And do you have a video you recommend people start with? All right. I am on YouTube as Princess Weeks. I also sometimes I'm on Twitter. I try to be on it so much less, but I am on, 
on on YouTube and I sometimes I'm on Twitter at Weeks Princess and I'm going to try and do better at Twitch, which is also at PM Weeks. Um, if there's a video that you that I think is great to start off, I really think the Confederate Vampire I one was say, is, 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 so is really solid. I also have a Gilmore Girls video about why I think Logan is the best boyfriend since that's on theme. But I, I really I really think that the Confederate Vampires is probably one of my favorite things that I did. And I like it's one of those videos that when it was done, I was like, good job. Yeah. And it's nice to still feel that way about your work after so it's long. Like, there is no better feeling than when you create something that you're like, Honestly, if someone doesn't like this, they have no taste. This is excellent. It, it, truly. And I remember thinking to myself, like, wow, I really cited this. Like, <laughs> I, I'm very proud of, like, taking all my grad school education to be like, I can cite my sources. <laughs> it's amazing. It's like a superpower. Well, I highly co-sign watching that video. It is. And all of your videos are so wonderful. Truly. Like, I love. I don't know if you have a specific thing you like to do while watching YouTube videos. But for me, it's like getting ready or yeah. like cooking and stuff. And yours are a perfect accompaniment. So I'm so glad to have Thank you here. You so much. And again, if you have not already checked out, obviously her channel, but also our series with Lindsay Ellis, Pop Culture Portfolio, which will also be linked, which uh, Princess wrote in part. Um, and yeah, I think that's it. Thank you all so, so much for joining. And we will see you next Monday on an all new episode of The Financial Confessions. Bye. Mm-hmm.